Hi, this is Eric Ludi for the Daily Thunder Podcast. If you are enjoying these messages and want to take these truths even deeper, I invite you to join us in Windsor, Colorado at Ellerslie for one of our upcoming five-week or week-long discipleship training programs. Ellerslie's discipleship training has been designed to ignite your spiritual fire and to give you the tools for a Christianity that really works. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So this is episode seven in Daring to Do as Stanley Dale, the series, and I'm really excited to be able to sort of make a guest appearance in this series. I am extremely passionate about this topic and some of these books that Eric has been reading from and quoting from are books that I've read for so many years and every single time I read them I'm just stirred at the deepest level of my soul and they've really greatly shaped my Christian walk. This session is going to be called Never for a Moment and it's specifically going to focus on Darlene Dibler. Eric has mentioned her a few times throughout this series. These are spiritual lessons that I've learned from Darlene Dibler and I'm also going to be speaking again next Wednesday on Darlene Dibler. So this is kind of part one in our sketch of her life. And when I, when I read her story, when I hear her speak and share her testimony, I'm always reminded of the scripture in Luke 14, 27 through 33, where Jesus says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Darlene's life was one of forsaking all, giving all, laying everything down, losing everything for the sake of the gospel. And her story is absolutely astounding, incredible, convicting, and inspiring. Most of her story is captured in her biography, which is called Evidence Not Seen. And as a reminder, Eric's mentioned her several times in the series. She was the woman who went to New Guinea with her husband, Russell, and he was the first person to trek into the interior of Dutch New Guinea. And when he came back, his feet were had this jungle rot, and she was bandaging these, these feet, which were repulsive to look at, but she felt that they were beautiful because they had brought the gospel. And she was the one impatient to get in there and lay down everything to bring the gospel to those people as well. She was also the one who walked into the room as Dr. Jaffrey was dreaming his dreams, and he had the atlas, and he was, he was kind of running his finger down the different areas of the atlas and praying for each one of those areas, and she was so moved and impressed by his dreams. And so we're going to just unpack her life a little bit today. She was the first woman to ever trek into interior Dutch New Guinea. She was very young. She was a new bride, a young missionary, but she was full of courage, full of passion. And as she and her husband were getting established in the interior, some of the first missionaries ever to go in and beginning to really see the fruit of sharing the gospel there, right at that time, World War II broke out and the Japanese began to invade the, the, those islands <clears throat> and they were called off of the, out of the interiors to go back to the coast because the Japanese were invading. And so she was kind of, a, her missionary career was seemingly abruptly cut short but we're going to see uh, as we walk through her story that it wasn't actually cut short. It was God, God had a very long-term plan for her in interior Dutch New Guinea. 
I first became acquainted with this book, Evidence Not Seen, when I was going through a really significant struggle in my life. It was a time when I felt alone. I felt like I couldn't handle the difficulty, the pressures, just the relentless struggle, the relentless challenge that we were facing. And I, I really felt like I was at a breaking point emotionally, just kind of at that place where I said, Lord, I can't handle any more. This has been going on so long. This struggle feels like it's never going to end. I can't handle any more. Right around that time, I read this story of a woman who had said yes to that call of God to live a poured out life, and it cost her dearly, and yet through it all, she triumphed in Christ. And as I read her story, I began to realize that if someone like this, just this young girl from Iowa who married a missionary and went to the mission field and said, Lord, I'll give everything for you no matter what it costs. If she could go through everything that she went through and come out victorious, come out testifying to the faithfulness and power of God, that same grace, that same power of God was also available to me for the struggle that I was going through. And it was a complete turning point for me when I read this book. I, I rose up to a new level of trusting in the faithfulness of my God caused me to rise up in the strength of God like never before. And the reason I titled this message Never for a Moment is because the most impactful quote for me personally in her book is about that theme. She went through extreme suffering, which we're going to look at in the next this episode and next week, and here was her perspective. She said, I discovered that when I took my eyes off the circumstances that were overwhelming me, over which I had no control, and looked up, my Lord was there. Deep in my heart, he whispered, I'm here, even when you don't see me, I'm here. Never for a moment are you out of my sight. I just love that because if you kind of put yourself where she was when she gained that perspective, all hope was lost in the natural human sense. There was nothing to be hopeful about. And yet she looked up and God said to her, I see you. And even when you don't see me, I'm here. And never for a moment are you out of my sight. A few years back, someone gave me an audio message that Darlene had shared at a church in the United States somewhere around 1980 after she had been a missionary for 46 years. And in this message, she shares portions of her testimony that are just so incredibly powerful even decades after the events took place. So I'm going to share with you three excerpts, three clips from this message, and then kind of unpack three spiritual lessons that specifically spoke to me, and I hope they'll speak to you as well from these three clips. The first one, and, and definitely the audio qualities, you know, it was recorded in a church in the 1980s, so give some grace to the audio quality. But the first clip is no matter what it costs. And she talks about when she was first called to the mission field as a child and how she responded as a 10-year-old. Lord, I'll go anywhere for you no matter what it costs. And then her experience for the first time going into the interior of New Guinea and then abruptly having to be pulled away right as she was getting established there. So this is about an eight-minute clip that we're going to listen to first. The next time I heard his voice very clearly was on a night when I was only 10 years old and there were missionaries speaking. At the close of the missionary service, Dr. R. R. Brown stood up and he said to the high school young people, he said to the college people from Ames, he said, have you got a life to give for God? For those people that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and this little girl stood back there. I loved my Lord. 
From the time I came to know him, I had an insatiable thirst for this word, and I memorized, I began to memorize volumes of scripture. God knew that someday I would be without a Bible. It would have been taken from me. But all those verses, God talking to me, he'd let down the needle of the Holy Spirit and just play it back to me when I needed it. As I listened to him, and I looked up that night and I said, Lord, I just wish I were a big person. I wish I could go down to the front and offer my life to you to be a missionary. And God noticed a little girl. We don't often include our children. But I want to tell you this. We made a study. We found that missionaries that have gone to the field have lived their life and many of them died on the field were called before they were 12 years of age. And that night I felt a hand on my shoulder, and I turned around and looked, and there was nobody in any direction. And I knew it was my Lord. And I said, Lord, what is it? And my Lord spoke to me. He said, would you really go anywhere for me, no matter what it costs? I was so thrilled that God even noticed me. I just lifted my heart to him and I said, Lord, I would go anywhere for you no matter what it costs. And I walked down to the front in the midst of those older young people. Nobody noticed me. That's all right, because my business was with God. And I made my vows to him. And God has no pleasure with those who make vows and never fulfill them. So at the age of 20, I was accepted when I was 19 for the mission field. I was married to a missionary who had been five years in Borneo, where in less than 10 years, God gave us more than 12,000 believers among those Dayaks of Borneo. God brought him into my life. At age of 20, I stepped onto a boat in New York, going out of the harbor. The ships band was playing Harbor Lights. I stood at the rail thinking about many of the harbors that perhaps God might take my life into. And I didn't at that time know exactly where we were going to be appointed. We'd heard about New Guinea. God laid New Guinea on our hearts. We rode to the field on our way to Holland to study the Dutch language. A letter crossed ours in the mail from Dr. R. A. Jaffrey asking if we would consider going not back to Borneo but going to New Guinea. My husband was the first missionary that ever went into the interior of Papua New Guinea, of Dutch New Guinea. At that time it was called Dutch New Guinea, now it's Irianjaya. We arrived in the Indies on our first wedding anniversary, the 18th of August. There came a time when I also had the privilege of going up into the New Guinea to join my husband over the trail eight days on a trail on which many men had died. I loved every moment of it. I was so thrilled, so excited when I reached there. I felt a oneness with those people. And as I once told you, I don't buy at all this culture shock. I just don't see it. If you are where God wants you to be, God takes care of all those things. I never found it hard to eat any of the things they gave me. Name it. Rats, beetles, caterpillars, grubworms. 
Some of them very nutritious. God gave me an entree into the hearts of those people. And they said, we know those that think we're dirty. We know those, too, that came here to do a job and those that God sent. I love those people. I spent 46 years among them. And that was leaving home to me when we finally had to leave because our property was expropriated by the newly founded nation of Papua New Guinea. There was a day when we came back. We had been going night after night into villages up all of the rivers and that flowed into Lake Pontiai, the largest of the three lakes. That lake flowed into a river that went down to the south coast. That was our guide into the interior. And that day as we came home, and it was my birthday, the 10th of May, and my husband switched on a little radio that some people from a church in Jeanette, Pennsylvania had given to us. And the news was that Holland was being invaded by the Nazi Germany. It was a terrible thing to us to think of that brave little nation that thought they could remain neutral as they had in the First World War. A little nation pitted against that great machine of war. My husband ran down to tell the patrol officer. He said, we've been in contact with them. We are told that we are going to have to abandon our post in the interior. That was a terrible thing to me, to have to leave those people that we had so soon come to know. We had some believers among them. One little fellow that the afternoon before we took off down the trail, he came to know Jesus Christ. He had been my boy. Oh, you know, we have nice homes there. I had such a lovely home, the first home I ever had. It was air-conditioned. Air came through most any place. We had tree bark roof. It wasn't difficult to repair the roof when it had a leak in it. I said, there are many things that you learn to do by Braille because uh, you don't put on lamps at certain times. Um, you take your bath, maybe in an old tub or something, because you never know when those little bits of bamboo are going to be pulled apart and you see eyes looking in. So we bathe by Braille. The touch system. Well... I turned around and I looked at my lovely little home that next day. We started down the trail and this little fellow who had come in every morning with live coals in his hands, shaking them up and down because he was going to start my fire. I cooked over an open wood fire. He said, Mom, I'm going with you. He said, My mother's dead and so you're my mother. I said, You can't go with us. I said, You've had malaria once for going too far down that trail. And I said, you must remain here because I do not know when we will return to you. He said, but I'm going to walk down the trail a ways with you. Came to the place where I knew that the malaria border was. And I said, now, Imopai, you're going to have to turn around and go back. And I looked up and I saw that little fellow standing on the hill up there. He had on a straw hat somebody had given him and just his gourd. The little fellow was crying. He thought he was too big to cry, and he was wiping his tears like this and wiping them off on his hip. And then he raised his hand and he called out. He said, oh, Mama, come back quickly. And I called back to him. I said, Imopai, as soon as I can, I'll come home again. Little realizing it would be a war and nine years away till I got back. 
So that's kind of some context for her first experience in interior New Guinea. And so for the second clip, this is the last time that she ever saw Russell, her husband, because he was killed in a Japanese concentration camp not long after this. They were called back to the coast. They couldn't stay in the interior because uh, it was, all the government pulled all the foreigners back. And she and her husband worked under Robert Jaffrey, and they had a mission station up in the hills right at the time when the Japanese were taking over the island. And so they were all taken prisoner for a time. They were under house arrest, and they came, and they took all the men to a concentration camp. The women stayed in house arrest. And so this is her experience, her first encounter with the Japanese, and that she ever saw her husband. And we listened to the radio. And then one day we heard that of the Battle of the Makassar Straits. We heard the news about Java falling, Bali, Lombok, Sumbawa. There was a policeman who came down from Molino. Now, Molino was just five kilometers farther into the interior from us. And many of the Dutch people had taken shelter there because they had houses where they usually went for their holidays to get away from the heat of the coast. This policeman came down, he said, we have one ship lying at anchor down on the south coast. We want to take all women and children and all foreigners that want to leave. We'll be back on Friday. This was a Wednesday. Dr. Jaffrey, wise man of God that he was, said, I would like to counsel you. Don't talk about it or discuss it with one another, even a husband with a wife. He said, you can be sure God doesn't work in confusion. He never calls a husband where he call, doesn't call a wife, and vice versa. But he said, go to your knees. Ask God what he wants you to do. Does he want you to leave on that ship down there? Or does he want you to stay here? He said, then, if you know the answer from God, he said, you'll never feel a coward if you left. And if you stay, you'll know this was right where God wanted you to be. We came together just before the truck arrived. There was not one person among us that felt we should leave. We saw the truck disappear. Some three days later, we heard the rumor that that ship had been torpedoed and sank. No survivors. I could thank God that I was right there where he told me to stay. And then by this time, the Japanese trucks could be heard going up to Molino. And one day they found the road leading into our conference grounds there at Bentontingi, which means High Ford. I was out working in the garden. We realized we were going to have to start gardens. We'd learned to eat a lot of things out of the jungle. Ferns are delicious. Uh, and, and I'm sure anybody who's been in Indonesia has eaten ferns. And I suddenly looked up, and I was conscious of somebody standing there. I had not heard him come. And I looked up, and here was a Japanese soldier standing there with his gun, bayonet on the gun. And he yelled at me, Piggy, go. Unkempt. I understood why they called them shock troops. They were the people that they sent in first, the first wave of soldiers that came in that just killed right and left indiscriminately to put terror and fear into the hearts of the people, and they did just that with the Indonesian people. He ordered me to go across, and then the others were being brought by, out by other soldiers, and we went down a gully and over to where Miss Marsh had a house, and the single women were living there, and Mr. and Mrs. Presswood had gone over to be with the single women. 
We saw Mr. Presswood. He had been badly beaten by the Japanese soldiers. Um, we were ordered to stand at attention before them, and the officers told us that we were now prisoners of the Imperial Japanese Army, that if ever we were seen off of the property, we would be shot on sight. We would have no contact whatsoever with any of the natives around there. My husband uh, always stood with his hands like this in front of him, and uh, it angered the officer, and he gave an order to one of his uh, soldiers. The man came over, yes, the, the bayonet was sheathed, but he beat his hands and beat his hands, and when he knocked them down, and my husband would put them up again, not realizing that what he wanted, and finally Mr. Presswood couldn't stand it, because he and Russell were very close friends. They'd worked together in Borneo. And he said, Russ, put your hands down to your side. He had learned that. He put his up like this, the international symbol of surrender. And it angered them because he was a very tall man, and there with his hands up, he towered over that little fellow in front of him. They had a, a, a phobia about people being taller than they were. I think it was one of the reasons that Miss Kemp, she said, I think because I was so tall and so big that they beat me so much. And he was beaten, his arms were beaten by this man. Suddenly he realized that he wanted him to put him down. So he said, Russ, put your hands down to your side. I saw his hands begin to swell. And then they told us that they had already defeated the Americans. He said, we've sunk the Navy. Do you know it came out so many times from them that they had sunk the Navy again? I finally said to some of the women, you know what those clever Americans are doing? They're making ships out of cork these days. Here it has surfaced again to be sunk once more. And then they left that day. That was the 8th of February, just two months after Pearl Harbor. Think of it. They had swept before them everything in their pathway, clear down into the Dutch East Indies, and they were moving in on the other side in a pincer movement. They came back again. And it was Friday the 13th of March. And I have a bit of Irish in me, but I'm not at all superstitious. I really believe that Romans 8:28 means exactly what it says. That all things work together for good to those that love the Lord. Not just the pleasant, that's the way we like to read it. Oh, the Lord helped me in this. When you had a real victory and you felt real good inside. But sometimes when he lays you on your back so you can listen to him, do you say, Lord, this came from you too. I thank you for it. Do you? It doesn't say the good things. It says all things work together for good. And that day they ordered the men to come. They were going to take them somewhere else to examine them. One of the officers had gone in the house was in Dr. Jaffrey's room. He said, get some things for your husband. He said, no suitcases. So I ran the bedroom and I grabbed up a pillowcase. I began to stuff things into it, his Bible, a notebook, a pen, as many clothes as I could get into that pillowcase. And that was just ready because I heard the uh, truck's motors being revved up. And I wanted to say goodbye to my husband when the officer said, what's wrong with that old fellow in there? I said, Dr. Jaffrey has been very ill. He was in a coma on the coast just before you came. He has diabetes. And I said, he has a heart condition. He has Bright's disease, kidney problem. 
I said, he also has Parkinson's disease. And he didn't know what that was, but I said, you'd notice the shaking of his hand. <sighs> he said, go in and tell the old fellow. He doesn't have to go. Anybody that needs all the medicine that man needs, he isn't going to live very long anyway. I ran in and I said, Dr. Jaffrey, they said you didn't have to go. And I came running out and the cart, the truck was beginning to move and I ran up to it and I grabbed the tailgate and I handed up the little bag that I had gotten for Russell. He bent over, put his hand over mine. He said, just remember one thing, dear. God said he would never, never leave us nor forsake us. And within minutes, he was gone out of sight. So that was the last time that she ever saw her husband. And then they were put under house arrest. So they had been told by the Japanese that if they left the premises or if they were seen talking to any of the local people, they would be shot on sight. So it was two single women and an elderly couple, Dr. Jaffrey and his wife, in this old house. They had no way to get food or supplies. So if you just envision their situation, you know, they, were, they weren't in a concentration camp yet, but they couldn't leave or they would be shot and they couldn't get supplies in, so they were just, just trying to survive. And this clip is just a five-minute clip called Rats and Bandits because it's just a small snapshot of their experience under house arrest and how they saw the faithfulness of God even in a really extreme situation. I had, among other things, to contend with rats. and I've had rats in my missionary life. When we got into the Baalim, we had rats there that weighed 30 pounds. And scientists said they were a true rodent. Someday I'm going to write a book on the rat and I. I hate rats. They were in that house. Of course, they're just single clapboard houses. Rats could come through most anywhere. And then the rain started. All the country cousins decided to join the city dwellers. And in they came. And they were that bad that if you didn't, if you left your shoes out at night or any clothes, they would eat them up and they gnawed on the shoes. We had to put everything inside of the wardrobes. And then in the afternoon, Miss Jaffrey and I would go through that house and we would just run those rats out of the bedrooms and shut the door and run them down the hall and get them into the kitchen where we corralled them because it was the only room in the house where you could shut the door and shut off their exit. Then each of us armed with a broom would fight those rats as they ran up the wall and jumped on us and screamed. I, I hate rats. I tell you, there are many a night when I've wakened and I can see these rats coming down off that wall. And I was screaming, but we killed everyone that we corralled and we carried out the bodies. Well, we had to protect our things and that was all a part of it. One night, when I was just half asleep, have you ever been just sort of half asleep and conscious of things going on around you and yet not fully awake and, and suddenly I just came fully awake when I heard a sound like a book dropped and I said, shook Margaret Jaffrey's bed and I said Margaret get up she said the daughter of Dr. And Mrs. Jaffrey I said You're, we're going to have to go out and light the lamps and have another go at the rats I said they're all over this house I've been hearing them I said we didn't do a very good job today so I went to the door and just as I got to the door of the bedroom I pulled it open, and in the, in the hall, we had a little tiny oil lamp. We left there for Dr. Jaffrey, who sometimes had to get up at night. 
And just as I pulled that door open, somehow swooshed past me in the dim light of that little oil lamp, I thought, Dr. Jaffrey, what a strange way for him to be acting in the middle of the night. And then I stepped out into the hall, and I looked down there, and there was one of these boogie bandits, you always knew them, they all wore the black sarong. And he just pulled it up over his shoulder like that, pulled out that big machete, and there he stood. And why I did what I did, I don't know, because I'm quite a coward. I just took off down that hall after him, and he looked at me. I think he was thinking, what's that crazy woman going to do? <laughs> anyway, he just turned, and he ran through the bathroom and down over the porch and down over the mountainside, and I went right after him. And when I saw several others come out of the uh, jungle to join him, I stopped dead still, and I just went like that. I said, oh, Lord, what a stupid thing for me to do. And just like that, the Lord answered me. He said, my child, the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth. I turned around and went up the house. I reached to pull the door shut. There was no doorknob. There was no lock. They had taken their machetes. They're good at carving. Had taken out the nicest little porthole you ever saw. And uh, by this time, Dr. Jaffrey was awake. Mrs. Jaffrey and Miss uh, Jaffrey were standing in the hall there, and they, he said, what, what's the matter? And I said, we've had bandits in here. They'd been in there, cloth of any kind had been taken, and what I had heard was a book that fell. They had gone through the books there, probably looking for money that might have been hidden in the books. And um, <clears throat> I nailed up that door that night, went up and got a board and nailed it all up, but there were two other doors that they could enter. And... Um, I lay down and I said, Lord, really the angels have been round about us this night. After the war, I asked Jerry, my husband, to take me back into that area. I thought whoever it was that was in that house that night, they knew the layout of the house because not one bedroom was opened. But they knew where everything else was. And I thought of that young gardener that used to work for the Jaffreys. And so I uh, found him finally down in one of the villages. And I said, Nomo, during the time of the big fight, did you, uh, were you one of those that came up to the house and stole some things? He dropped his head. He said, yes, Nyonya, I was. But he said, we were having a hard time too, and we needed material for sarongs, things like that. I said, but we heard you come back night after night, heard your dogs. But you never came in again. I said, you knew we were helpless to defend ourselves. And he looked at me with such amazement. He said, but you had all those people in white standing guard around that house. Do you know what they were? Yes, they were the angels of the Lord. And they saw them. Three powerful snapshots from her experience in early missionary life. And there's so much richness in each of those three little excerpts, and there's so much more to her story. We're going to listen next week to a few more of her experiences when she became a prisoner of war. But from these three excerpts of her life, I just want to share three simple takeaways that really spoke deeply to my heart through these, these glimpses of her testimony. So three spiritual lesson, lessons from Darlene's story. And the first one is, when we become willing to say, Lord, I'll go anywhere for you, no matter the cost. God shapes the desires of our heart. If you think about her delight, her love, 
for those people in the interior. First of all, she said she trekked in on a trail for eight days, the trail on which many men had died. This is when she's first going into the interior. She knew what happened to her husband, Russell, when he went in. He almost died. And he came back having lost, I think, 60 pounds or something and emaciated and jungle rot all over his feet. And she goes in there as the first woman, and she said, I loved every minute of it. She loved it. She gets into the interior, and the people say to her, we know the ones who kind of look at us as if we're dirty, we're wrong because the way we live, but we also know the ones who really have been sent here by God. She loved the people as soon as she met them. And if you read the book, you just see this instant delight and love in these people that others would look at as you know, dirty and primitive and backwards. She loved them so much. And she talks about her beautiful bark thatch roof house that had air coming and people looking in the, in the windows all day long. Not really, they didn't even have windows. But she just took delight in all that, loved all the food, the grubs. The, they ate bat, rats, they ate grubs and all sorts of things. And she said, I, I never had trouble eating any of that because when you're where God wants you, he takes care of all those things. And that to me is such a beautiful picture of how God shapes the desires of our hearts when we are willing to say, Lord, I, I offer myself to you. No boundaries, no restrictions, whatever it costs, wherever you want me, I'm willing. And he shapes the desires of our hearts. A lot of times we're afraid to say, Lord, I'm willing to go anywhere for you no matter what it costs because we project that he's going to, we imagine he's going to send us to the place we most dread, we can't stand, we don't want to be, we're going to be miserable the whole time. Yet Darlene went to a place that most people would be miserable and she loved every minute of it. It was like leaving home when she had to leave. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, when you first glance at this scripture, it might seem like a free ticket to just, hey, if you love God, he'll give you whatever you want. It just whatever desire pops into your mind or thoughts, he'll give it to you. But actually, that's not what this verse means. This verse means God shapes the desires of our hearts as we delight in him. So let's take a deeper look. The word delight in this verse means soft and pliable. In order to truly delight in Christ and receive the desires of our heart, we have to be soft and pliable to his will and to his ways. If we cling to our own desires, we are not truly delighting in him. And when it says he will give you the desires of your heart, it means to deliver or to put, to place. So he places his desires in our hearts as we delight in him. He shapes the desires of our heart to match his desires for our lives. And I think that is such an incredible comfort to those of us who might be afraid to say, Lord, I'm willing to go wherever you call me to go, no matter what it costs. We might be afraid because we're afraid that we will be miserable, we'll hate it, we won't, we'll be in these terrible situations, and yet God will shape the desires of our hearts to wherever he calls us, we will find great delight. I've often mentioned in the story of the five missionaries, Jim Elliott and his, his fellow missionaries, when they went to the Aka Indians who were considered the most dangerous people group in history at that time, they were like little children on Christmas morning. They were so excited. They couldn't wait to get in there because that was where God had called them to go. And everybody else is thinking, you're crazy. Why would anyone want to go there? Everyone who goes in gets killed. This is just asking for trouble. This is asking to become a martyr. And they, in the prime of their lives, you know, young men who had full lives in front of them knew that they would could likely die. And they were like little children on Christmas morning. They were so excited. There's so many more stories like that. But God places 
the desires that he wants us to have within our hearts when we say, Lord, I'll go anywhere for you no matter what it costs. So are we willing to lay down our own desires and let God shape the desires of our hearts? Are we willing to say, as Darlene did at the age of 10, Lord, I will go anywhere for you no matter what it costs? And that may be one of the scariest questions we will ever answer. But we can be sure that choosing to replace our dreams with his dreams leads to the greatest joy that we will ever know. And it's not always foreign missions where God has to, to shape the desires of our hearts. Eric and I had to, we wanted to go to the mission field, and God asked us to stay here and do what we're doing now. And that was a surrender process for us. And there were things that we dreaded. I remember when we first were called to speak on godly relationships back in the day, you know, 20-some years ago. That was the last thing I wanted to speak on. I thought, we're going to just be like this weird relationship couple, and people are going to think we're so weird, and people aren't going to respond to this. It's going to be miserable. And it turned out to be amazing and fulfilling and beautiful because God shaped the desires of our heart to match what he was calling us to. When Jackie Pollinger, who was a missionary in the walled city of Hong Kong for 40-plus years, when she first got there, here's a place that's filthy and destitute, and even law enforcement won't go. It's one of the worst places in the world, and every day before she actually moved there, she was staying outside the city, she couldn't wait to get up in the morning and get in there, and she was so afraid that other missionaries would get there before she did. This is the walled city where nobody wants to go. It's filthy, it's dangerous, and she couldn't wait to get there. Gladys Aylward wanted to go to China. She sacrificed everything to go to China. She, she worked three and four jobs, scraping together every penny. She sold her good, strong work shoes and traded them in for two left shoes just to put money toward her train ticket to get over to this war-torn land where she only knew one person and didn't even know that person very well, didn't speak the language. The mission board had told her, you're too, you can't learn the language, you're not qualified as a missionary. But she wanted to, she was so passionate about bringing the gospel there that she, she gave everything she could just to get there. If you have personal dreams and desires, I encourage you to lay them at the feet of Jesus and ask him to shape the longings of your heart. Eric and I, when we heard about, this is for our second adoption, we heard about a young woman in our church who was looking for a family for her unborn child. We came home that night and we started to pray that God would give us the privilege of raising that child. We already had two young children, we had a ministry, lots of deadlines, and we were praying and asking God to give us the privilege of raising this child who is now our 12-year-old Kip. But I remember after we prayed that prayer, we thought, why are we praying this? We're actually asking for more inconvenience and more discomfort to come into our life by asking for this child, but God was shaping the desires of our hearts. Amy Carmichael said, it is always safe to trust him to fulfill the desire that he creates. So when he places his desires in our hearts, he fulfills them in his perfect time, in his perfect way. When we remain in that posture of willingness, Lord, I will go anywhere for you no matter what it costs. Or I will stay anywhere where you want me to stay, no matter where it what it costs. The second spiritual lesson that I gleaned from her life is that when we choose to trust implicitly in the faithfulness, the protection, the providence of God, his protection is real. Never for a moment are we out of his sight. Darlene and the other missionaries, they had the opportunity to leave on that ship right as the war was breaking out. They said, all women and children and all foreigners who want to leave, ship and we want to get you out of here and dr jaffrey said 
don't just jump on the bandwagon. Wait and let God speak to your heart and he'll show you where he wants you to be. Are you supposed to stay or are you supposed to go? And not one of the missionaries felt a peace that they were supposed to go. And then later they found out that that ship had been torpedoed. It sank and there were no survivors. And later Darlene said, all through the war, even in the darkest times, even when it seemed like things could not get any worse, I knew that I was right where God asked me to stay. I was right where he wanted me in the center of his will. That experience with not going on that ship and how God confirmed she wasn't supposed to be on that ship. She knew no matter what happened to her during those war years, God had her right where she want, he wanted her. And her husband's last words to her were, he will never leave us or forsake us. And that became the theme of her life during those next few difficult years. To see the protection around that house. They were under house arrest. They were in a horrible situation. The men had been taken away. They might be taken away at any day. They'd be shot on sight if they left. They really didn't have any way of getting food and supplies. You would think, well, God's left us. He's forsaken us. And yet the bandits came but they never came back again because there were people in white standing all around that house. Never for a moment are we out of his sight. Corey Ten Boom talks about this. When she was going into the German concentration camp, the most horrible place she could ever imagine going, God had not forsaken her. She, by a miracle, was able to smuggle a Bible into that camp, and that became her little taste of heaven on earth, and all the women in her barracks would gather around as she read from that Bible every night. It was so clear that God was with her even in her darkest times, but never in a, for a moment was she out of his sight. He is trustworthy. And the third takeaway is that when we obey, God's word does not return void, and our work is not in vain. And this is a really powerful truth because no step of obedience to God is ever in vain. Sometimes we don't see the fruit of the obedience that we, the steps of obedience that we take. Sometimes we might not even see it this side of heaven. We plant seeds for the gospel or we say yes to God in some way. And then it just seems like nothing came of that. But God's word will not return void. It says in Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word that goes forth from my mouth, it shall not return to me void. It shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. And that's what you see in Darlene's life. I want to just call your, to your attention a little excerpt from Eric's message on Monday. Do Dr. Jaffrey, who's the old man who's dreaming dreams, and he's sitting in the study. Now, the context of this is really interesting. They're under house arrest. The Japanese have completely taken over. For all they know, the, the American uh, Navy has been sunk and is at the bottom of the sea. There may not be any hope for this war to turn out well. And he has, as you heard, the list of all his diseases. I mean, he's got diabetes and a heart condition and a kidney failure or kidney condition and Parkinson's disease. So he's got a few distractions in his life, you would think. You know, his health is falling apart. The, the war is breaking out. The Japanese seem to have control, but all he's thinking about is God's purposes. God wants to reach these people, and that's where his focus is, even in the midst of all of that. And this is, Darlene walks into his study as he's dreaming these dreams, and this is just a little clip from what he told her that day. This, Lassie, is our task. These are the areas we must enter after the war is over with steady hand and the voice of one assured of victory. He traced the map of our coming campaign. The Vistle Lakes area down either side of the Cardenas backbone, and at last his finger came to rest over the Grand Valley of the Balim. Now, I just want to, you to keep that in your mind as we go through something that happened to Darlene after the war. So Darlene and Russell, her first husband, had begun to pioneer the work in interior New Guinea. 
but it was abruptly cut short by the Japanese invasion. And as Darlene is recalling saying goodbye to that adopted tribal boy, Emo Pai, it would be nine years and a war and the tragic death of her husband, Russell, before she would ever return. She was captured by the Japanese. After she learned about the death, death of her husband, she was taken to death row, she was tortured, and she was sentenced to die. She must have wondered in those moments if all of those first steps into the interior of New Guinea were really in vain, if fruit would ever be seen from those first steps that they had taken. And Dr. Jaffrey, who had all these amazing epic dreams, he died tragically in a Japanese prison camp just a few months after sharing that vision with Darlene. He would never see to, live to see those dreams fulfilled. So how could the dreams of reaching the unreached come true in the midst of such horrible, incredible hindrances? But remember, God's word does not return void. And our steps of obedience are never in vain. And he is faithful to water the seeds that are planted for his glory. So here is what God did in this situation. As a result of Dr. Jaffrey's dreams <clears throat> and Darlene's willingness. This is taken from the epilogue of her book, Evidence Not Seen. This is after the war, after she's been a prisoner of war, after her husband has died she leaves the islands with nothing but the clothes, borrowed clothes. So she doesn't even have her own clothes. She leaves the island, and she comes to Oakland, California, where her family is. And she arrived there on November 30th, 1945, emaciated and emotionally fatigued. The 23 pounds that had been starved from her body slowly returned, as did her physical and emotional reserves. Now, remember, she had come to the point of death many times, almost lost her life, and been very, very diseased and wasting away. Her hair actually turned completely white in the Japanese concentration camp. That's how terrible her situation was, and she lost 23 pounds. And so I think she weighed like 80 pounds when she left the island. Over the next two years, Darlene testified to the power and presence of God throughout her prison experience before many who marveled at the fact that she had survived at all. Time eased her grief over Russell's death, while her memories of their life together in New Guinea confirmed her calling and necessity to return. Now that's incredible right there. This woman who's wasting away with disease is frail. She's lost everything. She's lost her husband. And she remembers their life together there. And she feels that God is confirming her calling to return to those islands. She had been called to serve as a missionary long before she met Russell. Remember, at the age of 10, she said, Lord, I'll go anywhere for you. I want to be a missionary for you. She resisted the many words of advice against single women missionaries, especially one as young as, as she, as well as the encouragement to stay home and let some years of comfort repay her pain in the South Pacific. Can't you just hear the voices of well-meaning friends and family? Just, hey, you know, you've, you've done a lot for God. Let's just you know, heal and think about yourself and get some years of comfort under your belt before you go back into the fray. But she said, no, I'm called to go back. In 1946, a young man named Gerald W. Rose was given a film to use in deputation. That's where missionaries raised support to go. It was a documentary of Reverend C. Russell Dibler's trek to the Vistal Lakes in the interior of Dutch New Guinea. So Gerald Rose is planning to go, and he watches this documentary about Russell Dibler's trek. And he was already under appointment to this primitive mission field. Mutual friends arranged a meeting between Darlene and Jer Jerry, unbeknownst to either of them. I think this was like a blind date, possibly. <laughs> As it was in God's plan, Jerry and Darlene married on April 4th, 1948, as they had been, I'll see, something's missing from my, let me, let me read it off of here. Okay, they were married on April 4th, 1948, 
And they began, I think this is just a typo, they began their ministry in New Guinea in early 1949. Together, Darlene and Jerry returned to the Vistle Lakes area and later pioneered the work among the Dani tribe in the Balim Valley. Now remember Dr. Jaffrey's dream. Remember when he had his finger on the atlas and he says the areas that we need to reach for the glory of God, the Vistle Lakes and the Balim Valley was the, the kind of the final place his finger came to rest. She and her second husband went and they were 30 years pioneering work in the Balim Valley. That, that dream came to fruition. Their two sons, Bruce Gareth and Brian Jaffrey, were raised among the native people. Darlene and Jerry stayed in New Guinea until 1978 when their station was expropriated by the newly independent nation of Papua New Guinea. Wow. Talk about redemption. God's word will not return void. Our steps of obedience are never in vain. So Dr. Jaffrey died without his dreams seemingly being fulfilled. Darlene saw her husband die without his dreams seemingly being fulfilled. She was brought to the point where she thought, how could I ever see those dreams fulfilled? And yet those were dreams birthed by God, and his word does not return void. If you ever listen to Otto Koning, who was a missionary into interior New Guinea in the 60s, he often referred to the, these native people, the Dani people, and just how amazing Christians they were and just sacrificial and loving and incredible. And he brought some of them into his mission station to help him witness to those he was trying to win for Christ. The Donnie people were those that Darlene and Jerry won to Christ. So the legacy continued. And after they had to leave, they went and became missionaries in the outback of Australia for several years. In God's perfect time, Darlene's burden, Russell's burden, and Dr. Jaffrey's vision was fulfilled. Jesus said in John 15, 16, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. Seeds planted for the glory of God will be watered by his spirit. You can be sure of that. Even if you don't see the end of the story, those seeds that you planted for the glory of God will be watered by his spirit. When we obey his call, his word will not return void. So a few other examples that you see from missionaries throughout history. Corey and Betsy Tinboom. In the concentration camp, Betsy had a vision of this home that she and Corey were going to start after the war. And all of these people who had been hurt and wounded by the war and they had bitterness and unforgiveness and all these things, they were going to come for healing and hope and hear the gospel. And then Corey was confused because Betsy died in the concentration camp. And she thought, hey, we were going to start this ministry together. Betsy had this clear vision of this specific house. She had described the house in detail to Corey. And Corey was now confused because Betsy was gone. How were they supposed to start this? How was Betsy's vision supposed to be fulfilled now? After the war, Corey began to witness to people, share her testimony, and a woman came to her and said, I have a house that I want to give to you for your work. I feel like you're called to minister to those who have been hurt by the war and come and see the house. So she walked through this house, and it was exactly the house that Betsy had described from that vision that she had had in the camp. So Corey knew God was bringing that vision to fruition. Robert's Bible, if you've ever heard the story of Robert Germain Thomas, he was in the mid-1800s. He was only a missionary for about two years. <clears throat> Started in China with his wife. His wife died very shortly after they got there. His unborn child died. They, then he felt compelled to, to sort of get Bibles into Korea. At that time, Korea was completely closed to outsiders, and they would execute anyone who stepped onto their shores. He was able to get a few Bibles in, maybe once or twice. He got a few Bibles in. 
Didn't know if anybody ever got them. And then the very last time he was there, he handed a Bible to a 12-year-old boy, and, and right after that, an ex executioner came with a sword and said, kneel on the ground and beheaded him. So was it worth the sacrifice? This young man in his 20s got a few Bibles smuggled into Korea, gave one to a 12-year-old boy, then he dies. That seems fruitless. And yet, 30 years later, when one of the first full-time missionaries, Samuel Moffat, went into Korea, he expected to find a place, because Korea had finally started to open to foreigners, they expected to find a place that had never heard the gospel, and yet he went and found a thriving church. They only had one Bible. It was, it was uh, this 12-year-old boy grew up. He was the pastor now of this thriving church, and he had wallpapered his house with the pages of that, that Bible Robert Germain Thomas had given him on the shore five minutes before he died. And Samuel Moffat was like, Wow, the gospel got here and prepared the way. And so Samuel was able to teach these people who were hungry for the gospel, and that led to the Korean revival of 1907. There was a missionary couple who went to a very remote part of Africa with, two, with another couple. So four of them went. They were super hostile to the gospel. Nobody would, they wouldn't eat, the people would not even let them come and live among them in the village. They had to live outside the village. They were hostile to them. There was disease and all of them died except for one man, one of the, the, the husband. And it was a horrible situation. He left in so much bitterness thinking that was completely pointless. We prepared for this and we all sacrificed our lives. I'm the only one left. We didn't even have any converts. But his wife, before she died, she had witnessed to their, their house helper, this little boy from the tribe that was helping them carry firewood and stuff. She had witnessed to him. And then some 30 years later, it came out that that little boy had given his life radically to Christ, had become a pastor and a leader among the people there, and a revival was breaking out in that part of Africa, and all stemmed from this little houseboy that his wife had led to Christ before she died. He thought it was pointless, but God's word had not returned void. And then I've mentioned already the five missionaries that went to the Aka Indians. They were like little children on Christmas morning, but everybody said, this seems like a waste. These were the brightest and the best. They had so many years still to give to God. Did they die in vain? And yet, about 10 years later, the children of some of those men were baptized in that same river by some of the men that had killed their fathers because the gospel came to that area through forgiveness, through the family members forgiving. And because they gave up their lives, that gospel radically changed those people. If you have taken any step of obedience in your life that seems fruitless, you can't see the end of the story, you don't know if it's making a difference, remember that God is still writing the story. He will honor your obedience just like he did Darlene's and Russell's and Dr. Jaffrey's because never for a moment are we out of his sight. As we're dreaming these dreams and we have these burdens and we're feeling compelled and then hindrances and circumstances seem to get in the way, God is still working and he's still writing the story and never for a moment are we out of his sight. So in conclusion, God is calling all of us to become the modern-day examples of radical devotion to Jesus Christ in our generation. It's easy to look at stories like Darlene and Russell and Dr. Jaffrey and these five missionaries and Corey and Betsy Ten Boom and think that's for special Christians. It's a calling for all of us. It's not just for Christians in extreme situations. It's for each of us right where we're at taking the steps of obedience that God places right in front of us. It may not be as dramatic looking to other people, as some of these stories are, but it's obedience that matters. As Amy Carmichael said, ours should not be the love that asks how little, but how much. The love that delights to pour out everything upon the feet of our beloved. And that was the motto of Darlene's life, just the delight of being willing to pour out everything, give up everything for the glory of Jesus Christ.
And C.T. Studd said this very straightforwardly. Don't come to the mission field, and I would say don't live a radically devoted life to Jesus Christ if you want to make a great name or want to live long. Come if you feel there is no greater honor after living for Christ than to die for him. So that brings us back to the Stanley Dale model, going enthusiastically, sharing courageously, serving sacrificially, suffering joyfully, and dying triumphantly. Let's pray. Lord, we freshly say to you that we are willing to go anywhere for you no matter the cost. And for those of us who are not yet feeling that willingness, we ask that you would make us willing, that you would shape the desires of our hearts to match your desires. Lord, that we would trust you enough to know that never for a moment are we out of your sight, that we would trust you enough to know that wherever we go for you, you will give us such joy, such protection, such peace, even in the hardest of circumstances. Lord, thank you that your word does not return void, that those steps that we take to plant seeds for your glory will be watered in your perfect time and way. For those of us who may be discouraged, may we remember that you are always faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.